This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, all our Torah Anytime uh, viewers. So somebody asked me, uh, actually, I got this quite a few times, like, you know, when they saw the, the title for this class, and it said, you know, this class was for a, uh, for a woman only. It says, what about men? Men don't need to learn about this? So I said, first of all, men can go and learn about this on Torah Anytime after it gets, uh, it gets posted. But, you know, I was starting to think about it, you know, like, what is the difference when you go and, and a woman learns Torah and a man learns Torah? And it's really something that men have to learn from it, from, from a woman. And that is when a man goes and listens to a class or learns a shear or whatever it is, and they get the information, nine out of ten times that information generally stays with them. It stays, you know, inside of them, they understand it, they hear it, they, they count but it stays with them. What happens when a woman listens to a class? So if a woman hears a certain idea, and she likes the idea, and she, what happened? She shares it with her husband, she shares it with her children, she shares it with everybody else. So when you teach to men, only men learn about it. When you teach a woman, you're teaching to their husbands, you're teaching to their children, you're teaching to their friends, you're teaching to their family, you're teaching to everybody else, which is really something that we really need to learn from, uh, you know, from women. But then I was, making, I, was, I was thinking about it. You know, when dealing with emuna and money, it's, you know, in the olden days, it would be, this topic would generally be more prone for just men, because men would be in the workforce, and women are not usually involved in the olden days, and the men had to do with the finances, even to the point that women didn't even know the finances. But nowadays, it's very different. Nowadays, women are very involved in the workforce. First of all, they work, many of them work, and even if they're not working, they're involved with the finances of the family. So even, so, so the, the aspect of emuna and money comes very, very important even nowadays, or I should say especially nowadays. But there was something else also that, you know, it's been already a few weeks, or no, more, it's been already a few months since we spoke about you know, the Muna topic. And I was giving different, you know, classes in different era, you know, different places, and not everything was recorded, but it wasn't really on the topic of Muna. And this is the first class that we're giving on Muna in, in uh, let's say, maybe three or four months, uh, if my memory serves me correctly. And as I was preparing for this class, I was learning it. And I noticed that, you know, when you, when you're giving the, you know, when you're, when you're learning about Muna, it actually makes a huge difference inside of you. Now, I didn't, I, you know, I've been, I could say we've been doing this these series for quite some time. We, you know, over a year we've been going through this topic and really going and delving into it. And I don't believe we ever had such a long break in it. And when we had the break, I noticed that now that I started learning more about it and reviewing about it and preparing for this class, Emuna makes such a huge difference in your mindset. Like I, I I'm saying that like I'm, we, I said that before, and I meant it before. But I mean it even more now. Like, I mean it even stronger now. Because it, it's really so amazing and how, like, it really changes. And, and the part that amazed me also was, so I've been learning this and, and preparing these, these, this series for a long time. I've been very much involved in the whole, you know, aspects, all the, all the, the information on Emuna and Bitachon. But, when I had a little bit of a break from it, and then I started learning again, I realized, like, wait a minute, I feel different. This is not something that you could just learn once. And, you know, many times you would listen to a class and be like, no, I, I already know this topic. Emuna and Betachat is something that you can never have enough. You always have to constantly be reviewing it. You always have to be constantly be, be putting it into your mind, internalizing it. So, when dealing with money specifically, money is something that many people think about. And again, it used to be just men, but now 
it's also a woman as well. Uh, think about during the day, think about during the night. And, and it doesn't mean that you, know, you think about business or you think about your work. Because many times you're not thinking about work, you're not thinking about business, but you think about money. And what I say is maybe you want to buy something. Maybe, you want to, maybe, you, maybe you're not in a job. Maybe you want to open up a business. Maybe you don't, you don't have an idea. So you don't have any funding. But you want, like your mind is always focused and involving around money. It might not be work. It might not be business. It might not be your career. But it's involved very, very much so. For many people, it's involved about money. To the point that, you know, you, you can't focus on anything else. Like you're trying to focus on anything else. But the whole aspect of money keeps on coming back into play. You know, the American Psychological Association brought down that money is a top, one of the top causes of stresses for many Americans. If they would have went and they would have learned the Marple and Nefesh, which was written in the early 1800s, they realized that ready back then, the Marple and Nefesh brings down and says that the chief cause of mental agitation and confusion, which prevents a man from learning Torah and going and pursuing the religious and spiritual growth, is the constant worry of Panasa, the constant worry of livelihood. I looked at a, at a few polls, and the, there was a Harris poll that made, was done in the early months of COVID, COVID-19. And it showed that 90%, 90% of Americans felt financial stress. They had some sort of, of, of stress financially. And by the way, that makes sense, because that was the beginning of COVID. People were stuck at home. People were unable to work. People were being furloughed. People were being laid off. So it makes sense that people had the financial stress. However... There was also another study that was done in 2018 and 2019 when unemployment was at its lowest point in years. The stock market was up. The GDP was growing substantially. But many, many Americans still suffered from financial worry. They still had this financial stress, even though the economy was doing so well. In 2019, the uh, you know, Compare Card did a study that found that 70% of Americans cried about money at some point in their lives, with 57% doing so within the, past, within the past year. That means more than a half of the American population was crying about money, about money-related issues within the past, within the past year. The, there was another study done by the Northwest Mutual Study that, one, that more, than, more, more than one in four people are, feel depressed about finances, at least monthly. At least on a monthly while they feel, this is not just like crying, this is a different level, this is depression. This is like they're feeling depressed. And two out of ten are feeling depressed weekly, daily, or even hourly. That is the level that it affects us. And this is again, this is a study that done in America, and of course, obviously in the non-Jewish uh, you know, population. Uh, we'll soon see why it makes a difference. There was also a study that was done in 2011 by a peer-reviewed journal, medical journal, the GMAA, the JAMA of Psychiatry. They compared the, the people that made under 20 grand a year and people that made over $70,000 a year. And the research showed that the people that were on the lower level of the income, there were more mental disorders, there were more suicidal attempts, there was an increase of, of anxiety, depression, and also substance abuse, as opposed to the higher end. So we see over here that money makes, takes a very, very strong hold in our well-being. And not only that, it also affects, and by the way, I have to just say it right off the bat, it doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. People are still stressed out over money. It doesn't matter, you know, maybe to a different extent, yes, but, but they have so many people that have this stress upon them. There's also emotional damages, you know, that, that occur by this, uh, 
let's call the the financial worries. You could, first of all, it's worrying. That's also an emotional damage. There's anger that you can't get the money that you wanted, or maybe you feel you deserve more and you haven't been getting more. Or there's you know different levels of stress regarding getting the money, keeping the money. There's also the anxiousness, the 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 the, the anxiety related symptoms that a year have about about closing deals, about making the mortgage payment, about paying the rent, about all these anxiousness comes together. And unfortunately, this results in depression. And it could be depression from what you don't have, or it could be depression of what you once had and you lost, or you feel like you don't have enough. So there's a lot of emotional damages with this. There's also physical damages. There could be, uh, you know, initially it starts off with, you know, let, let's say headaches or stomach aches, but once you continue with these, you know, these stresses, it results in heart disease, anxiety, diabetes, in fact, digestive disorders, cardiovascular problems. Uh, of course, this is a, you know, this is, could use as a springboard for a substance abuse and other types of, uh, you know, related, um, medical conditions. There's a lot of there's a lot of actual physical manifestation of stress that results in your in your in your body, and we can't forget the spiritual damages where people are so focused on money that they tend to forget the laws of the Torah. They tend to forget you know the the you know the halachot that we have to go and follow, whether it's dishonesty, fraud, thievery, any other transgression, anything in between. There's also something, and this is something that that really like. I don't even, it, it's hard for me to wrap my head around it and the, the intellectual damages that it caused. Uh, and, and what I mean by that is like a twisted intellect where you could have people that they literally steal other people's money. Steal, thievery, robbery, whatever word you want to use, they take other people's money. And I always wonder, how do these people sleep at night? Like, how do they go and they sleep at night? You know, and I'm not saying, okay, they made an investment and it was bad and they lost the money. No, no, I'm talking about like actual thievery, actual stealing. And by the way, nowadays stealing doesn't mean that you go into break into someone's house in the middle of the night and go into their safe and take out the money. There's so many other aspects of, of stealing and I don't want to give, I actually had a few examples and I didn't want to give because of, it was unfortunately, you know, too common. I didn't want to go and I didn't want to, um, uh, you know, give certain examples, but use your imagination. And the reason why this is so horrible, I don't know what other use to, word to use about it, is that one of the, one of the words used in Gemara for, for money is damim. Damim stems from the, the, the shalash, the Hebrew word of dam, blood. What is the relationship with dummy money and dam blood? And just like blood sustain a person, so too does, does money, and this is something for that the, the Maral's brother, Abhaim of Friedberg, goes and brings down, that just like blood sustain a person, so too money is the essential of nice. It, it, sustains, it sustains you in the financial aspect of it. And that's why the Torah the goes and tells us that if somebody who has no money, someone's poor, it's considered as if he was dead. And that's why Yaakov Avinu, he went and he went to, to you know, Talifa said, take my money, don't kill me, and it's considered as if I am dead. And you know, the, 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 when someone goes and takes money, you're taking the life force of people. Can't tell pe- people how, how many people I know that, that it destroyed them. It destroyed them. I have to this day phone calls of, of people that had their money stolen from them, defrauded from them from years ago, and they're still suffering to this day. It's, it's, it's as if they took their life force from it. And these people that, that steal the money, they're able to sleep at night. I don't know, maybe they're not. Generally, of my understanding, they are. I was, I was once speaking to a businessman about it, and I was, I asked him, I said, how is it that he wasn't, you know, he was very, very straight like an arrow. 
I said, how is it that, that people are able to go and, and do all this fraud and everything like that and still go to sleep at night? And he, he said, it doesn't even come up on their radar. He says, that's how bad it is. It doesn't even come as a bleep on the radar. It's, it's like nothing. Then they're able to sleep. They're able to be happy. They're able to see things. They're able to take your money, use it for their own personal, steal it, what, 100% gneva, and feel zero guilt. Feel nothing. Again, that's already a psychological disorder, but we're not going to get into that. The, um, the, the Medrash in Kohelis Rabbah, the Medrash in Kohelis Rabbah goes and says that three things injure a body. There is heartache, Stomach ache, stomach problems, I shouldn't say stomach ache, stomach uh, problems, and an empty empty wallet, empty purse. And which one is the worst, says the Midrash? The empty purse, the empty wallet. And if you're the one that caused this empty wallet, how do you go? How are you able to go and, you know, and sleep with that? That's why it's called damim, it's blood. It's as if you killed a person. You really drained the, the, the life force out of this person. The... When, when you're looking at, you know, we mentioned Damim, but really when you look at, you know, in the Torah, you look at the Gemara, you look at all these things, there's different names that are associated with money. There is Kesef, there is Shekel, there, and the Gemara brings down Mamon, Damim, and of course the coin, the, the, coin, the famous is Zuz. So there's five, there's a, there's a minimum of five different names that are used, whether it's in the Torah, whether it's in the Gemara, about, about money. Now I want to break this down. A lot of it is based off the Maharal of what lessons that we could learn from the when, the, when the Torah uses different words for money, there's a reason for it. There is a reason that you're able to go and you're able to learn something of why it uses a certain, you know, vernacular in this place and not in anywhere, in anywhere else. So the, you know, the, the word kesef, says the Maharal Pod, is you know, something very interesting. When you're dealing with money, money is, is not like other things that you acquire. So when you acquire other things like wisdom or even character traits, let's say you worked on yourself and now you're a better person, that becomes part of you. The wisdom also becomes part of you. But no matter how much you acquire financially, that never becomes a part of you. The stock market doesn't become part of you. Your bank account doesn't become part of you. Your real estate investments don't become part of you. And the reason says Shlomo Melch, that you don't feel satisfied when you get all these things. It's because it doesn't become part of you, explains the Maral. And that's why the Shlomo Melch goes and says in Kohalas, it says, Oh, if kesef, lo yisba kesef. If somebody loves money, you will not be satisfied with money. Over here it's referring to silver, but the same idea. You love it, you're never going to be satisfied with it. And that's why the, the word kesef, explains the Maral, comes from the, from, from the show, from the word nichsaf. Nichsaf means yearning. Someone who has a desire for him. Someone who has a lot of money, even though he has a lot of money, he's still yearning for more. And that's why the famous Medrash in Kualas Rabbah goes and says, Yesh lay mana If somebody has a hundred, he wants two hundred. No matter how much you have, you'll never be satisfied because you always want double. A rabbi was once very close to somebody who was extremely wealthy. And... The guy, no matter how much money he made, he was constantly working. And he constantly kept on working. And the rabbi went over to him and he says, when are you going to take a break? When are you going to allow yourself to go and relax a little bit? So he goes and says, no, I, I got to make more money. So the rabbi goes to him and says, the rabbi goes to him and tells him, how much do you need in your bank that you could calm down and you could relax? So the guy thinks for a moment and he says, if I have $100 million in my bank, I could calm down. And the rabbi says, okay. He says, let me ask you another personal question. He says, how much do you have right now? The guy says, $50 million. 
The rabbi starts smiling almost to the brink of laughter. He says, look at this, how the, the chazal was so right. He says, no matter if you have 100, you want 200. You want double of what you have. That's the human desire. And here we see it straight up at, you know, as proof. Where no matter how much you have, you'll never be satisfied. So you'll always have that stress. You'll always have that worry. You'll always have that anxiety of, oh, let me, what's the next deal? How am I going to next make the next dollar? Where am I going to bring the next amount of money? The another, that's kesef. Kesef, so that means that it's something from a desire yearning, you'll never be satisfied. The next word that is used for money is shekel. So this is from Rabbeinu Bachia, goes and says that shekel is related to mishkal. Mishkal means to wait, to wait something. Meaning that when you're about to do something, you have to weigh your actions. Is this going to be a good action? Is this going to be a bad action? Is this going to be a neutral action? Generally speaking, there's really not much neutral actions. It's usually either good or bad. But you have to go wait. What, what's, the, what's the pros and what's the cons of what I'm about to do? But says Rabbi Nobachi, he says that's not only with your actions, it's also with your money. When you're spending your money, are, what are you funding with it? Are you funding with it more spiritual needs or more physical needs? Are you using, are you weighing the balance? And that's why it's shekel. That's why also we give machatzis a shekel. Why half a shekel? To realize that, wait a minute, you know that the Baruch go went and gave you money. But now what are you going to do with the money? You have to weigh it. That's why half a shekel, half of the weight that we have to do, let's put that towards spirituality. Let's put that towards other people. Let's put that to tzedakah to help other people. And that is shekel. Mamon, Mamon, this is, you know, on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, there is, uh, you know, especially in the, if you're davening Sfarad or Ashkenaz, not, not, I, don't, I don't know if this is in the Sfaradi, um, you know, Machsar, and is the, the, one of the part that it, most people cry at is Unisana Tokif. This is the prayer that really hits people. And at the, you know, at the pinnacle of it, you know, you go and, and you scream, you say, Uchuva utfila utstaka ma'avirin esroya hagzera. That the translation is tshuva, repentance, tfila, prayer, saka, and, and charity, ma'avirin rayagzera is going to be a go and be able to remove the evil decree. You're able to go and remove the evil decree. And whenever you look in the machzor, you're able to go and you're able to see that on top of the words tshuva, tfila, tzedakah, there, sometimes on top, sometimes on the bottom, usually on top, is another, you know, a small, it's sort of crowned with another word. And on top of tshuva, is tzom. On top of tefillah is kol. And on top of tzedakah is mamon. The word mamon. Now, tshuva, that comes from fasting. When we fast, it's not about, oh, let me fast and let me just try to get through this fast. So let me watch as much movies as I can. Let me try to, you know, take as much naps as I can just to get through this fast. The purpose of the fast is to go and to do repentance, to do tshuva. That is the purpose of it. So that's why on top of tshuva is, on top of tshuva is tzom, fasting. On top of tefillah is kol, is, is, is voice. What is the voice? Voice is when you, when you pray, when you daven, you're supposed to go and you're supposed to raise your voice. And the Mishnah Bura goes and brings down that it goes and gives you a little bit of a better concentration when you go and you raise your voice. This is, there, there is, the voice is the voice of prayer. And finally, tzedakah, what is that referring to? Tzedakah, that's mamon, that's money. Why? Because we have to realize, and the really, the, the word mamon should always go and put into our mind that it reminds us that when we donate to charity, to tzedakah, this can, this could avert evil decrees. With tzedakah tatzil mimavis. Tzedakah has the ability to go and save from death. So that's tzedakah. That's, that's, that's tzedakah. Now zuz, the final one, zuz. Zuz, in Aramaic, means to move. That, what does that mean? That money always moves. Money never stays. And we always have to remember that even you acquired it, it doesn't mean that it's going to stay with you. You could be wealthy today, it doesn't mean that you're going to be wealthy tomorrow. You could be not wealthy today, but it could be that you're going to be very, very wealthy tomorrow. 
The Chose of Labin goes and says that Hashem can make a beggar, not just a beggar, but as someone who is a destitute beggar, like the lowest level of begging, he can make him rich in an instant. And, uh, you know, God can make a wealthy tycoon poor in an instant as well. Rav David Asher brings down a story that he gave a shear, and a wealthy businessman came over to him. And he says that he wants to share with him the story of how he built it. He was in his business for over 50 years. And he related that his first major profit that he made was that he purchased a, a large quantity of certain amount of food. And he intended to sell it at cost price or a little bit above it just to make a little bit of money. And he bought it then at a dollar a pound. And he wanted to sell it either for a dollar or a little bit more just to get into the market. But before he had a chance to resell the product, the market rose you know, drastically. And it went to $5 a pound. That was the market value. So when he bought it, it was about a dollar. Now he was able to sell it at $5. In an instant, he became a wealthy man. In an instant, he went for something that he wasn't even intending. It wasn't even in his plan. But the guy goes and he goes and he continues. And he says, you know, he spent a long time building a large corporation. And a couple of years ago, it nearly came crashing down. Somebody reported to the FDA, FDA is the Food and Drug Administration, that there's a suspicion of a certain product that he's manufacturing, that he's producing. And they opened up an investigation and they told him he has to recall the food. And they threatened to shut him down, the entire business. So he had to put everything on hold. He couldn't sell any of the products. He couldn't do everything was in his factory, in his warehouses, has to be on hold. And what did he do? He did the only thing good do. He started diving to Hashem. And he prayed and he prayed. And a short while later, it doesn't say how long it happened, but a short while later, the accusations turned to be unfounded. And while he was having this product in his warehouse, the price of the product that he had doubled. So instead of almost losing his fortune, he gained, he basically doubled his fortune from that. But then he goes on and says it doesn't end over there. He says he wants to give another example. He says there was a, there was a competitor that tried to put him out of business. And the competitor went, and the way that this, the way that he explained it is the guy went and he, the way that he ran the business, he, he purchased a product at cost price and sell it for a small profit. The same way that many people, you know, do business, you buy something and you sell it for a little bit more. And he bought a certain product for $3 a pound. And he was intended to selling it for a little bit over to make a little profit. He was doing a large volume, so he didn't need to go in such a high, uh, um, you know, so, you know, he didn't have the need to sell it in such a high increment of a, of a, you know, of a profit in order to make some money. However, he had a competitor, and the competitor purchased numerous farms of where this product was grown. And he decided that he was going to sell it to the stores for $2.50 per pound. This product cost price is $3 a pound, but this competitor wanted to take over the market. So he wanted, he went, and he went to all the stores, and he said, I'm going to get you the product for 50 cents below market value. So of course, everybody signed right away with him. So 50 cents, of course, and they signed it. Meanwhile, this guy who has a product that he was going to purchase, he didn't have the farms, he was purchasing the product for $3. How is he going to sell it for $2.50? He's going to lose all the money. So he was sitting on all this product, not knowing what to do. So meanwhile, some time passed, and when the time came to fulfill these orders, it turned out that this his competitor had all his farms in the West Coast. And in the West Coast, there was a severe drought that caused all the competitors' farms to produce less than half of the anticipated value. 
meaning that he wasn't able to go now and fulfill the orders that he promised for two fifty a pound. He couldn't. He didn't have the, enough volume. Whatever that he you know predicted that he would have in in produce came less than half. So. He needed to go, and he, he was in the business for a while. He was trying to take over the whole, you know, he, you know, the whole industry. But now he had all his, all, all the stores calling him up and be like, where's the product for 250? And he had no other choice than to go and to buy the product from somebody else. Now, because of the drought, the product rose. Instead of being, you know, $3 a pound for cost price, it went to $5 a pound. Now, because of the, because of the drought. So now, his competitor that wanted to take him out of business needed to buy his product from him because he had the product. He was, he was importing it from not from the West Coast, from a different place. So he had product, but he couldn't sell it to anybody because everybody already made conscious with the first guy. So he had to go and now the, the, the guy who wanted to take him out of business for, for a 250 had to go and buy it for $5 a pound from the competitor that he wanted to take out of business. So meaning that the guy that wanted to destroy his business ended up being his best customer. We make so many calculations and sometimes we see that everything is going downhill. Everything is going bad, but before you know it, everything turns around and you never know that the downfall could become your windfall. And this is the way that we have to understand that many times we think that's us. I had this idea. I had this business idea and I wish I did it. And I, I can tell you for myself, I had an idea um, a few years ago about a healthcare app. As related to, you know, to the pharmaceutical company, uh, companies, uh, you know, in the drug uh, business. And I had this idea, but I didn't really, I spoke to somebody about it. I didn't really do much with it. A short while later, I found out that one of the big retailers, I think it was Rite Aid. I don't remember who it was. Rite Aid, uh, one of, one, one of those ended up coming out with the same app that I wanted to, uh, wanted to go. Uh, be like, oh, you know, if only I went and only, if only I did it. And uh, the truth is, I really feel bad for app developers. Because everybody who's an app developer, everybody goes out there and be like, well, I have a great idea. Why don't you make Pokemon as Tetris and then sell it as a banking app? Ah, this is exactly the great. Everybody comes with their own ideas and I really feel bad for that. But there are some times that those ideas actually do come through. But we think about it be like, it's my idea. And that's why I made the money. I had an idea for an app and I went through with it and I made the money. Or maybe we went through a good college. We got a good degree, and that's why we think we're making the money that we have. And we are attributing our success to our college degree or our education. Or maybe because we're just so intelligent. We're so smart. We know how to look at the, you know, at, you know, at the market, and we know how to predict, and we know how to go, and we know how to make money. Or maybe we think, no, you know what, it's my family money. My family has money, and that's why I was able to go and invest, and I was able to go and make money. Or many times you think being in the right place at the right time. I can't tell you how many business people I spoke to and, you know, when they say how they made the money, they made the money because they were in the right place at the right time. They think it was, and they attribute it to luck. Whether it's real estate, whether it's stock, whether it's Amazon business for that matter, it doesn't matter. The problem with this thought process is that we're attributing all the success to something that is not our reason of our success. Our reason for our success is only because Hashem, a God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu went and decided and said, you know what, you're going to be successful. If you go and you have a certain app idea, Hashem gave you that idea. Of course, Hashem gave you all the ability either to pull through with it or not. But Hashem, it wasn't you. You think it was your family money? I can't tell you how many people have family money and they lose all the money. It wasn't because of your degree. There's so many people who have the highest level of doctorate degrees and they can't make payments. There's, it's not because you're smart. There are geniuses that are broke. 
and it's not being at the right place at the right time. There are people that were in the right place at the right time and they just didn't invest with it. At the end of the day, you want to know what makes you the money? You want to know what makes you successful? There's one reason and one reason only. And that is HaKadosh Baruch Hu. He is the only reason that you are successful. Not because you're smart, not because you have a good work ethic, and maybe those all attributed to it, and not because of your family money, not because of your education. At the end of the day, it's all because of God. Period. That's all that there is to speak about. There was a boy that came from a very wealthy family. And this boy, he went and he decided that he is, um, you know, making his money on his own. He didn't want to go and he didn't want to make money from his, uh, you know, from his father. So he goes and he tells his, his father, he comes at 21, he comes 21 years old and he says, Dad, he says, I'm going to make money on my own, I'm out of here. He moves out of the house, packs up all his bag, moves into the city. Problem was, he didn't have a place to stay. He was 21, didn't really think too much in the future. So he's going, he's like, the first thing I'll do is let me try to find a job. And he goes from place to place trying to find a job, but no one wants to hire him. He has no education on, you know, in anything that they wanted to hire him for. He had, you know, he had no skills. He had nothing. He came from a very posh, wealthy family, but he didn't know anything. So nobody hired him. So days and days and days, he's searching for a job. He can't get find anything. So he had nothing else to do and he couldn't, he didn't have any money to go and rent an apartment. He ended up sleeping in a park bench and he's sleeping on the park bench with all his stuff. And a few days go by. And, uh, you know, there's a guy that walks by and, you know, sees him. He says, you know, what's going on? What's up with you? He's like, you know, he's like, you know, this is, uh, you know, it was like, welcome to my home. <laughs> this is my home. What can I tell you? He says, why don't you, uh, where's, you know, why don't you go to your house? He says, I don't have a house. I said, why not? He says, I'm trying to find a job. I don't know. I couldn't find a job. So the guy looks at him, has pity on him. He says, listen, he says, you know, I was looking for a dog worker and I, you know, if you go and you walk my dog, I'll give you three meals a day and I'll let you stay. I have a guest house. You can stay in my guest house. So the guy, the, the boy was very appreciative. He says, of course, of, you know, of course I'll do it. The, guy, the boy ends up walking his dog for three, you know, three times, four, you know, four times a day because the guy was very obsessive about that. Walked for a little bit. At that day, he was working for less than an hour and this guy was providing him a roof over his shoulder. This guy was providing him three meals a day. Now, without the stress of having to find an apartment, this boy was able to go and try to find a job. He started going from place to place searching for a job and he couldn't find anything. Finally, he ended up going to low paying jobs. He went into a certain pizza store and he said, listen, can I, uh, maybe you need uh, some worker for something. And the guy says, yeah, we need, uh, you, you know, we need, we need a worker for some, uh, you know, little jobs. And um, he says, you know, fine, I'll take it. And he starts working, getting paid bupkis. And all of a sudden, the owner of the pizza store goes over to him and says, you know what? I see you're doing your, your work so, you know, so well. I'm going to give you a promotion. And he makes him, instead of just washing the dishes, now he's also in charge of like the fries or something like very, very small. But he gives him, instead of, you know, he was making $10 an hour, now he's making $55 an hour. Like a crazy, crazy promotion. But this boy didn't think anything else. So he thought, okay, whatever, you know, my luck. Now he was making $55, $55 an hour, you know, cleaning the floors a little bit and, you know, stirring some fries on the fryer. Now he was making a significant amount of money for what he needed and he was living, you know, rent free. That he started saving some money and he was able to go and move out on his own. 
And slowly, slowly, the pizza owner slowly gave him more and more promotions. But promotions that, like, if you would have looked at it from outside, didn't make any sense. But he kept on just, like, giving promotions. Okay, now you're in charge of actually the oven. Now you're getting paid $100 an hour. And he was getting paid, like, crazy money for little tasks. And he was saving the money until the time came that he felt, you know what? He says, I know everything about the pizza business. Let me open my own pizza business. So he had some money saved. He goes and he couldn't find the location in a prime, you know, prime area. So he went a little bit of the sketchy part of town and he he rented a place and he invested some money and he opened up a pizza store. Problem was, is that nobody walked into this pizza store. It was in the wrong part of town. He didn't have a lot of, a lot of foot traffic. The location was terrible. And he had, you know, a few customers a day at best. One day, he's losing money head over. He's, he's, he's bleeding money. Forget about losing money. And one day, this guy comes in and he tastes his pizza and he says, wow, this pizza is delicious. He says, I've never had such a delicious pizza, pizza before. He says, tell me, he says, I want to become partners with you. He says, over here, you're not going to make any money. He says, let me, let, let's join business to get ventures together and I will go and I will get you a prime location and this way you're going to be able to go and you're going to be able to make so much more money. And the guy says, yeah, of course, you know, like I've been struggling, you know, I'm looking to take on a, on a business partner. So he goes and he takes on this partner and they open up in a prime location and this business partner goes and hires some high-end chefs and meanwhile the business starts booming and people start coming in and be like, wow, this pizza is the best pizza we ever had and he was making so much money. And in a short period of time he decided he's going to open up another location and he opened up his second pizza store and within three years he had five pizza stores making a ton of money. Now, he hasn't spoken to his parents, to his family in three years. Now he's starting to think. He says, you know what? He says, maybe I should write to my parents. I haven't spoken to them in so long. So he takes out a pen and paper and he writes to his father. And he says, you know, I wanted to just, you know, after all the greetings and the, you know, the the regular, you know, hi, hellos that a son would tell his father. He says, I wanted to just tell you, dad, that after three years of being away from you, I've made my own fortune. He says, you know, I didn't need any help from you. I didn't need any help from my brothers. I was able to go and, and, and build a corporation. I had five pizza stores under me in just three years. And I just wanted to tell you, I wanted to show you that hard work, perseverance, that is the key for success. You don't need a rich father. You don't need family money to make money. And he sends in this letter to his father. A few days later, the, he receives his father's response. And the father responds, is my precious son. He says, I'm so happy that you're doing well. And I feel that it's my obligation to tell you of what really happened. And the father goes on and writes in the letter. He says, do you ever wonder why a total stranger found you on a park bench and let you stay in their guest house for just walking their dog and gave you three meals a day for just walking their dog? He says, I sent that man after you to look for you. And when he found you, I told him, I, I set up a superficial or or a fictional you know character that this was man and i gave him a dog and he went and he produced this whole this whole just to go and give you a roof over your shoulder and to give you some food and when you got the job at the pizza store he says you were making 10 bucks an hour he says i went over and i told the pizza owner i says i'm gonna pay the ten dollars an hour but i want you i'm now i'm gonna pay him another 50 bucks on top of that just give him a little promotion make him think that it's coming from you because I was paying your salary in the pizza store because I wanted to go and boost you up. Nobody makes $55 an hour for moving some fries in a fryer, for sweeping up some dirt. And says, not only that, when you opened up the store, it says, you are going to fail. There was no way you were going to succeed over there. So I send my, a different guy to your store 
and say, you know what, let's move you to a prime location. And he moved you to a prime location. But the problem was that the pizza wasn't that good. He said, so I went and I had the guy go and hire some you know, high-end chefs to go and produce good pizza. And then I went and I paid customers to come in and go and patronize you on how good your pizza is. He says, you think you put your money in your own pocket? He says, my dear son. He says, it wasn't your hard work that earned you your money. It was your loving father who will always be there for you that set all this up. You know, many times we go, we think that we made it in business. You know, we found, you know, we got into business, we built a large corporation. And we feel this is our, you know, we, we worked so hard. And, you know, there are many, there, there, I have to be careful how I say this because there are many good things that come out of it where you have these care of organizations that go and they will, they will get CEOs of certain companies to come in and talk to people, kids in public school, like religious CEOs to come talk to kids in public school. Look, you could still be a religious person and still be a large CEO. You, you're still able to have a large corporation and make a lot of money. And sometimes, I can't say all the times, the business owners, they come in and be like, you know what? Yeah, we studied the market, we went and we, we worked hard and we did everything that we social and that's why we made we, we made the money. And, and the answer is that, that that is true to a certain extent, but the real lesson that has to be you know conveyed to the to the to these kids is that at the end of the day it's God. It's all Hashem that gave us everything. It's nothing else. It's not this boy's, you know, pizza store dream to open up that he was successful. No, it had nothing to do with that. It was because he had a loving father that gave him and sent him all the business his way. And so to us, whatever we have, wherever we're working, if we are successful, then we have to think about it for a second and realize that it's all from Hashem. It's all from God. It's not our ideas. It's not our understanding on it. It's not our education that gave us this. It's all 100% from Hashem. There was a guy came in from Europe and he didn't speak a word of English. This guy, he tried to get as jobs, but he didn't speak a word of English. So how is he going to, uh, you know, get a job? So he decided, this is post-World War II, he decided that he's going to go and he's going to start, you're going to go and you're going to try to work in, um, you know, in, in Jewish companies. But he had no skill. So the Jewish company was, wouldn't even them, they wouldn't even hire them. Until finally, you know what, he says, you know what, let me go and I'll be a shamish. I'll be the guy in shul that cleans up after everybody. I'll be the guy that, the janitor that goes and helps, you know, whatever they need to, you know, for the shul. So he goes and he meets in a certain, a certain shul and he was speaking Yiddish, that's what most people, most Jews were speaking. And um, they were about to hire him. He says, everything looked good. And then they asked him in Yiddish, says, uh, do, you, uh, do you speak English? And the guy says, no, I don't speak English, but what do I need English for? He says, you know, I'm cleaning. And the, the you know, the shul, or the synagogue, better yet, they were like, you know what, I don't think this is going to work. We need somebody that speaks English. And the guy was like, what? why do I need to speak English? He says, well, I'm literally just sweeping the floors. I'm cleaning. I'm not even interacting with people. He says, no, 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 the synagogue, the board said, look, sometimes people are going to come in and they're going to need to ask questions. We need somebody that speaks English. And he couldn't even get the job of being a janitor in a synagogue, in a shul. But he needed to provide, he needed to make some money. So he goes and he decides that he's going to borrow some money from his friend and he's going to start the, you know, a push cart. He's going to buy some, some, you know, products in a certain store and he's going to go door to door. This is before there was an internet, obviously. And he go door to door and try to sell some, uh, some product. So he bought, he decided he's going to get into the household, uh, business, the, the house, houseware. 
And he started, he bought some houseware products, he put it in his push cart, and he went door to door. And he was quite successful, you know. He, you know, he couldn't even figure out the words in English. He was showing them, you know, five dollars, this, ten dollars, uh, or back then it was like a dollar, two dollars. And, uh, he was quite successful to the point that he was able to buy two push carts. And he was able to even hire somebody else to go door to door. To make a long story short, he was very successful with his two push carts. He ended up being into five push carts to the point that he decided that he's going to close his push cart business and he's going to instead open up a storefront. He had money for a storefront. So he opened up a storefront. And again, house, same, same houseware items that people are coming in. People are, you know, he was doing business. It was going great. Within a short period of time, he opened up another store. And within another short period of time, he kept, he opened up another store, another store. With, within, within a relatively few years, he was a very, very large corporation. And he was a successful businessman, became very, very wealthy. Many years go by, he's running his business and he decides that he's going to, he came across this uh, business opportunity. Will he, where, where he will join, uh, you know, partnership with another very large corporation. And he reviewed all the information and he decided he's going to go through with it. He's going to do this joint venture and they're going to go together with this other company. And they go and they meet in this, you know, skyscraper in Manhattan with the top notch lawyers. And they're sitting over there, his future business partner with his lawyer and, you know, and, and him himself with his lawyer. And they're going and they're, and they're going over the documents and they're about to finalize it. And now they have to go and they just have to sign the documents. So his future business partner, the two corporations that are merging together, they go and they, the lawyer presents him the documents. And now he has to sign where the X is. So this businessman is taking it and he starts signing wherever he sees X and he starts pulling out the papers and signing where there's X. And his other businessman stops him and he says, no, 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 no. He says, I don't want you just to sign the paperwork. He says, I want you to read it. We're going to wait over here as long as it takes. I want you to read everything to make sure that you're able to go and you agree with everything that's written. So this from Jewish businessman says, starts smiling and he says, don't worry about it. I'm just going to sign. And the guy goes to him and his future business partner. He says, no, 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 I refuse to go and continue until I know that you read it. I want everything to be straight, everything to be clear on the table. So finally, the Jewish businessman goes over to his future partner and he says to him, and he starts smiling at him and he says, listen, he says, I would love to read. I would love to read this whole thing, but there's a problem. And the guy says, what's the problem? He says, don't worry, as long as it takes you. And the Jewish businessman says, no, that's not a problem. He says, you know, the problem is, the problem is I don't know how to read. And the guy this future bit literally almost fell off his chair. He says, what? You don't know how to read? He says, you're a multi-millionaire. You know, like you have numerous businesses under you. He says, you, you know, you have thousands of employees. What do you mean you don't know how to read? And the guy says, I don't know how to read. And the guy says, what, what's going Like, how do you not know how to read? And the guy says, I don't know what you're so shocked. At. I just don't know how to read. That's it, you know? So the guy, is, the guy was shocked, and the guy, his future business partner, he says, do you understand? He says, you made so much money, and you still don't know how to read. Do you know that if you knew how to read, do you know how much money you would make now? So this Jewish businessman goes over to him, and he says, you know, he says, you want to know what would happen if I knew how to read? And I'll tell you even better, if I knew how to speak English properly. It was, you know, from the, you know, speaking, even his English was broken. He says, if I knew how to read and I knew how to write and I knew how to speak English properly, you know where I would be today? And the guy is thinking he could probably be a multi-billionaire by today. 
And the Jewish guy says, you know, you know where I'm going to be? Or where I'll be? I would be, if I know how to read, and I know how to write, and I know how to speak English properly, I'll be cleaning synagogues. That's where I would be. He says, because, and he goes and tells him all the story, because I couldn't get a job, because I couldn't go and I couldn't, you know, even, even be a janitor. I wasn't even on the level to be a janitor that I am where I am today. So many times we go and we realize and we think, you know, how we got where we got to because of all our success. We never even realize that our biggest failure could be the biggest reason of our success. Our biggest downfall could be our biggest windfall. Rabbi Levi Yitzchak once saw a guy running in the street, and the, the rabbi stopped him. He says, "Whoa, you know, where are you rushing to?" He says, "You know, I'm running to my business. I'm running to make my my parnasa. I'm running to make my livelihood." So the rabbi goes over to him and he says, how do you know that your livelihood is in front of you? Maybe your livelihood is the other way. Maybe you're running the wrong direction. Meaning that we think that we're going to go into the business and that's where we're going to make the money. But how many times, have, how many stories have you heard? Forget about what I heard. How many stories have you heard where people were trying to make money one way and the real money came from a completely different way? A completely different area. And that's where, that's where the money actually came from. The altar of Kalm, of Simcha Zisal Ziv, goes and says that some people devote their entire lives to becoming wealthy, yet they struggle to survive. But then there's some people that try not to be wealthy, and everything they touch turns into gold. And if you think this, this doesn't happen, the Rabbi Yosef Chaim of Dagda, the Benish Chai, goes and, and you know, it says that there was a guy that came over to the rabbi, and he says he has... Too much ayin hara. He says too, people are, are too envious of him. He wants to lose money. He needs to lose money so that the people see that he's losing money. But the problem was that every bad investment that he tried to make, it ended up succeeding. Everything that he did, t- that he touched, turned into gold. And to the point that he actually went and he complained to the rabbi. He says, Rabbi, why can't I lose money? So this is a complaint that halavai, you know, on all of us, this is what we want to do, that we should be able to try to lose money and we can't lose money. So the rabbi responded to him, he says, you think, what do you mean? You think it's your, your mindset? He says, Hashem is the one who pulls all the strings. It's not what you decide that you're going to make a right investment. And, and, and I have to just like put it out there. It's not, you know, you shouldn't just like do any investment or any business without thinking and be like, well, if God wants it to be successful, I'll be successful. The truth is, yes, that is the truth. But we have to do our due diligence. We have to do our ishtadlut. We have to go and, and obviously do our, our effort in it and make sure that we're doing a smart decision. But ultimately, the final say, it's all God. It's nothing else other than Hashem. The flip side, you have Rabbi Avram Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra was known to be extremely, extremely poor. And everything that he tried to do to make money failed. He failed in so many different things that he was convinced that he would never escape poverty. And he even said about himself that if I were to sell burial shrouds, people will stop dying. If I would sell candles, the sun wouldn't set. Meaning that everything he tried to go, it just didn't work. Meaning that Hashem wanted it for whatever reason for him to be the way that it was. At the end of the day, we have to realize that it's not our intellect, it's not our smart you know, business savviness, it's not our family money, it's not our education, it's all 100% from Hashem. And Hashem can make you wealthy, can make you poor, and can make you anything in between. There was once a young man who was trying to break into the diamond business. And he went over to his rabbi, his rabbi was in the diamond business. And he went over to the rabbi and he hoped that he would get some sort of like tips for, you know, how to break into the business. And the rabbi goes and the rabbi 
hands him over a book. And the guy says, what, what, what's with this book? Is this like, you know, like tips and tricks for the trade? And the rabbi says, no, that's, my, uh, that's the list of my customers. And the guy was like, he's like, you're giving me your customer list? And the rabbi says, yeah, you wanted help with it. Here's some customers. You could go call them up. They'll, you know, give you some business. And they were like, he was like, he's like, Rabbi, I can't take your customers away. I just wanted some advice. And the rabbi says, no, no, no take it. Don't take whatever you need. The, the rabbi had to go and convince him. And how did the rabbi convince him? The rabbi goes and explains. He says, you, can't, you cannot take money away from me. If something was decreed on Rosh Hashanah that I'm supposed to make a certain amount of money, I'll make that money. He says, whether you have my customer list, whether you have the secrets to the trade, it's not going to make a difference. Hashem knows how to send me money. Hashem knows where I live. I, I'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Start your business. And he convinced him to go and take some of his customers. Which, which, you know, like when we think about competition, there was once, you know, on the flip side, there was once a guy that went over to his rabbi and he said, somebody is trying to steal his livelihood, his panasa. He says, the rabbi says, what's going on? What's happening? So he says that he has a friend that, or a friend, acquaintance, that is working in the same profession as him. And he said, he's stealing all my customers. So the rabbi goes and responds him with a story. And he says, you know, the horse, when the horse goes into the lake to take a drink, before the horse begins to drink, he kicks the water. Why? Because he sees his competition there. The horse sees his reflection, and he thinks that his, you know, his reflection, he's trying to go and trying to drink the water away from him. So the horse kicks the water, and tries to kick this reflection, and now the water starts wrinkling, gets more muddy, there's no reflection anymore, and now the horse is able to drink. But the problem is, the horse is drinking now muddy waters. Why is he drinking muddy waters? Because it doesn't see his reflection anymore. Because he chased away his opponent. He says, you know, when you, the rabbi goes over to him and says, when you think the other person is taking away your livelihood, in truth, God is giving you the panasa. God is giving it. But the problem is, when you're always focused on somebody else, then what happens is that you end up drinking the water. You're, you're taking your panasa, but what happens is you're drinking muddy waters. Why? Because it's mudded, it's mudded with jealousy. And you can't enjoy what you have. Just drink what you have. Don't worry about what your competition does. Don't worry what your competitor is doing. There was once a, um, a person that went to Reb Chaim Kreisworth, the, the chief rabbi of Antwerp. And he was very, very upset. And he said, you know, he has his, you know, his competitor, has the same business as he is, and he's doing very, very well. And it's bothering him because he's not doing as well as he wanted to do. His friend is doing much better than he is. So the rabbi goes and says, maybe you're not working as hard as he is. He says, rabbi, not possible. He says, I never close my shop until I see his car pull away. I always make sure that I close my shop after him. So the rabbi says, maybe, maybe he has more employees than you. He says, nope. He says, it says, I recently added two more employees than he has. So he says, maybe, you know, maybe his office space is nicer. The guy says, absolutely not possible. He says, I went and I remodeled last year and I made sure that I was nicer than his. The, 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 Student goes over to the rabbi and says, each count, I outdid him. Everything I, that he did, I did better. Now the rabbi smiled and looked at him and says, you know why your friend is doing better than you? It's because your friend is focused on his business and his business only. He says, but you, you're running two businesses. You're, you're running your own business and you're also concentrating on your friend's business. He says, forget about your friend. Focus on your own business. Stop looking everywhere else. Focus on your own business and that's, you'll be, you'll be successful. Stop looking at everywhere, everywhere else and, and starting to compare and contrast. You know, there was once a righteous Jew. He had a business that, uh, he had a printing uh, store and he had a competitor that opened up right next to him. And, 
the this righteous dude went went when the day of the opening went to greet his his neighbor his competitor, and he goes over to him with a nice shalav aleichem goes and shakes his hand and says you appear to be new in the city please let me know you know if you need any advice on business and this and the printer jumped on this idea he was new to the, you know new to the business new to the city. And he started talking to him, and the guy was giving him advice, and he was telling him his prices, and he was telling him what he should do and try to get the business. It was basically building up the business for his competitor. You know, when his family heard about this, they went over to him, and, he's, and they went over to this, to this righteous person and says, what are you doing? You're, he says, not only did this guy went and built a compete, competing business right next to you, but you're helping him, and you're, you're instructing him on how to be successful? He says, it's going to take away your business. So the righteous man looks at his family and he says, can't take away my business. This is impossible. He says, at the end of the day, Hashem decreed of what I am going to make on Rosh Hashanah and I am going to make that. Whether he's here or whether he's not, I'm going to make the same amount. He says, in fact, this is how the righteous, this, look how someone thinks. This is how a righteous person thinks. In fact, I should, I should give him gratitude. I'm very grateful that he opened up his competing business right next to me. He says, because now he's going to go and he's going to take some of my business away from me. And I'm going to have to work less because now he took away my business. But because, but I, now I took away less, but I'm not making less because Hashem decreed a certain amount that I'm going to make on Rosh Hashanah and I'm going to make that money. So now I have to thank him because I'm going to make the same amount of money, but now I have to work a lot less. This is the mindset that we all have to strive to grow, to, to achieve. And really a person should never, never despair. Even if there's a channel of panasa of livelihood that closed down, Hashem has other ways to go and send you the money. And this is compared to, to, to splitting of the sea of Kriyas Yamsev. That's the, you know, the Gemara actually compares it to Parnassan to Kriyas Yamsev. Why? Because Kriyas Yamsev, the splitting of the sea came in the most impossible way. You know, like no one ever dreamed of the solution, right? So you're, imagine you're, 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 you have the Egyptians chasing after you. And you have, you're the desert on all sides and then you have the ocean. Like, and you know that God is going to save you. Would you ever think that God is going to split the sea? This is never done before. This would be never in your wildest dream would you think that this would be the resolution. You think God would strike a plague. It would be a lightning bolt that will come down. A bunch of angels will come with a bunch of spears with like huge muscles and scare the Egyptians away. Like, like you'll think about that to split the sea. Like you'll never even think about that. Why would it even come? In, and you know why it was done in a certain way? To show you, to teach the Jewish people a lesson. That Hashem has ways that even you cannot dream of. And if you're struggling with Panasah, whether you're struggling with everything, Hashem has a way to save you. And to save you in a way that you can't even begin to dream of that way. The Rav Shach, which is the Rosh Hashiva of Panovich, you know, once had to take a bus to Tel Aviv. It was in Bnei Brak, he had to take a, uh, the, the bus to Tel Aviv. There was a Chinach, not to, you know, there was a Chinach Atzmai uh, gathering. And the bus ride back then cost 10 agorot. Figure like 10 cents each way. And he, the problem was they didn't get paid in months. They didn't get paid in about 6 months. They didn't have any money. So he went to the office and says, can I have 20 cents please so I could get to this, to this, uh, um, to, you know, to, to this, uh, you know, Asifa, to this uh, uh, gathering. And, you know, later somebody was walking with Rav Chatzko, uh, you know, and, and they were going and saying, you know, like, eventually they were, the Panovich Yeshiva was able to have money and they were able to pay the salaries. And they were speaking to Rav Chatzko there, and they said, you know, like, oh, Baruch Hashem, we're, now we have the money, we have, we're, getting, we're getting paid. And the rabbi started crying. And he said, you know what? He says, yes, we're getting paid, but nothing was as good as those delicious months that I had nothing else to rely on other than 
bitachon. I didn't have anything else. All I had was my emuna and bitachon in God. And, and the rabbi says, how delicious was that? He says, I miss, I miss that to a certain extent. That's a level. That's a level where you enjoy that emunah and that bitachon. Meaning that many times we're stuck with difficult situations. And yes, we try to work on emunah, we try to work on bitachon, and we try to go and build ourselves up. But we feel it as a sort of, okay, this emunah, this bitachon, this is going to get me through it. But maybe we could put a little bit of a twist on that. And instead of thinking that this is going to get me through it, appreciate that closeness that you have with Hashem. Appreciate that closeness that you have with HaKadosh Baruch Hu and be like, you know what God, I have nothing. I'm stuck. I got nothing. All I have is you. But instead of feeling bad that all I have is you, I am so happy that all I have is you. It's a yasam, an orphan. They have an easier time relying on God. Because they have no one else to rely on to. On the flip side, they're also the ones that HaKadosh Baruch Hu listens to very, very quickly. Because of the, that aspect that they could only, they only rely on God. So meaning we could utilize this on such a, a, such a powerful skula. That when we realize that we have nothing else to rely on other than HaKadosh Baruch Hu, we'll be like, listen, you know, I got nothing. All I have is you. There's a huge power, just like an orphan, gets answered when he prays. Why or she prays? Why? Because they have nothing else. HaKadosh Baruch Hu says, I have to answer you. You're relying on me. So, so too, when we rely only on God, HaKadosh Baruch Hu goes and answers us. When we go, and we're thinking about the stresses of money, and we're thinking about the worry and the anxiety that we have of money, we have to realize one very, very important aspect. Probably the most important aspect, is that at the end of the day, Hashem is the one who can make anyone wealthy. Hashem, God is the one who could take you, no matter of your education, no matter of your financial backing, no matter of your ideas, no matter of, of anything else, and He can make you wealthy. On the flip side, you could have the education, you could have the family money, you could have the business ideas, you could have, the, you could have everything. But God could take everything away. Because we have to realize there's one thing and one thing only. Everybody, I can't say everybody, many, many people, what do they want? They want to be wealthy. They want to be wealthy. And, and, and they go through so many different schemes of, of, and I'm not saying that in a bad way. Schemes is a bad word. So many different ideas and pursuits. Of, and, and many times, rightfully so, you have to do ishtalut. I'm not saying you should be lazy. I'm not saying that you should go and be like, you know what, God is the one who's going to give you money. Let me sit back and the money will come to me. No, we have to do our effort. We have to do our ishtalut. But we have to realize of where the money stems from and where the money comes from. And when we realize that, then our stress levels goes down. Our anxiety levels goes down. We are not depressed anymore. And when we're not depressed, when we don't have that stress, when we don't have that anxiety, all of a sudden our physical well-being becomes better. We become healthier. We become happier. We become stronger people. You realize that if you have a high level of stress, stress, you're you're immune system goes down you're more you know you know you're more likely to get cold flus and all these other you know diseases viral diseases viral infections and but if we have that power that strong immunabitahan and realizing that everything is minashamayim that everything is god then you you take that stress away but even more than that i want to tell you one step it's not only about your physical you know you know happiness and and well-being that i'm talking about but when you rely only on god then God is going to go and help you out. The famous you know, line that we've been saying again and again and again and again so many times from the Chavis of Abbas, that if you go 
and you rely on your own power, on your own money, on your own intellect, or on your father's, or whatever it is, anybody else, then you know what Hashem says? You know what? You're relying on your friend, you're relying on your boss, you're relying on your partner, you're relying on yourself. Go ahead. I'm going to take a step back. Let's see what happens. But if you go, and if you rely only on Akadosh Baruch then Akadosh Baruch is going to go and intervene on a much higher level. And that's why it's very beneficial for us. That we want, you want to be wealthy, you want to be successful, you have to realize that there's one place and one place only to turn to, and that is God. God is the one that's going to decide if you're going to be wealthy or if you're not going to be wealthy. And it's not going to make a difference of all your ideas, your plans, and anything else. Because at the end of the day, it boils down to one thing and one thing only, and that is your emunah bitachon on God. And again, a little asterisk, a little star, that doesn't mean that you have to be lazy, and you, or you should be lazy, or even if you could be lazy. You have to do your work. You have to do ishtalut. But we have to realize where everything stems from. And there's other Hashem, may God help us, may HaKadosh Baruch Hu help us and bless us, that we should have the power to have this level of an understanding, this level of emunah, this level of bitachon, that we will achieve this, and God will grant all our desires, all our wishes, and if it's panasah, it should be panasah, berevach, b'shefa, and benachas also. And with that, we'll open up to any questions. And you guys could either put on the tab, or you could unmute yourself, because nobody's on. Yeah, um, I see there's a hand up. You could unmute yourself. There's, you're the first one. Hi. Um, okay, so, you know, so we know that... Um, there's like a, a level, like when, when you have more Muna, the Hishabbos level goes down, right? Um, you do say, I, I lost you there for a second. You say that when you have a Muna, your Hishabbos goes down? Yeah, so like it's, so like what's, what's the balance though? What, what, at what point do you so, say I've done enough? Right, so the question is how much, how much ishtadlus, how much effort we have to do. That's really the question. So, uh, th- we, we spoke about it previously in general. I actually want to give a class. I, you know, so it's, it's not something I can answer in like one minute because we are, I am preparing a full class on it, on how much effort you have to do for ishtadlus. So, so we will, it, it might, it, the problem is it might not be titled that, but it, it is going to be, on the, you know, it is going to be a plan that I am going to be, uh, you know, speaking about it. So while I can't answer it in one sentence, because, well, the truth is I could. Technically, I could answer it once. The, the, the level of ishtalos that you need to have in the simple way is the same. Your ishtalos has to be consistent. So everybody's level of ishtalos is different. And it all depends on where you're holding. So if you do a certain level of ishtalos in one area, you have to do that in all areas. You can't decide, because usually, the, the, I'll tell you what the issue is. The issue is really where it comes to laziness tries to convince us that we don't have to do ishtadlas because, you know, we have emuna. But really, it's the laziness talking, and it's not the, the, not the emuna that's talking. So, if you do a certain amount of, let's say, ishtadlas in dating, that's the same level of ishtadlas you have to do for panasah, that's the same level of ishtadlas you have to do in everything. So, you have to be consistent on what you're doing in all areas of your ishtadlas. But the question is how much and what you're supposed to do. So we'll speak about that. And the reason why I want to give a separate class, even though we spoke about this, is because Ishtalus and Parnasa is something that sticks out. It's something that sticks out because it's, I don't want to, you know, we'll speak about it. It's more like a, the reason why we have to work is a tax. It's not because, it's not, it's not that we're required, it's not, can you, can, I don't want to say the wrong words. We're not, we don't need to work, but we're allowed to work. Is, is the better terminology. And we, in order to explain that, we have to go give a full class on it to go and explain on how much are we actually required or need to or have to 
or allowed to work. And we'll speak about that in uh, in the future. But in general, answer is your level of shadow should be consistent in all areas. General. Again, panasa, it really is different. But we'll speak about that. That's, that's what I'm speaking about in general. So I kind of answered your question, but I kind of didn't. So I apologize for that. Any other questions? No? All right. Amazing. Okay, thank you all for joining. Thank you all for, uh, hopefully we'll be now continuing to Wait, be... Um, yeah. This is a little random question. That's so, fine. I know that if, let's say, you Hassan, don't believe that Hassan is not physical, then you get you don't get a prison all in above. But is Samayim different than all in above? So the way that it works, um, we have to break it up into there's there's Olam Abba, there's Gan Eden, um, uh, there's Shemayim. There's different terminologies that is often often thrown around. So the general understanding is as follows: that there's ge- there's there's Gehenna that everybody knows, not, no confusion over there. Then there's Gan Eden. Gan Eden is sort of a place where it, when someone passes away, this is where they go to if they were a good person, but that stays until. Mashiach comes. When Mashiach comes in, there's Tchiyas Mason, and then there's Olam Haba. Olam Haba, people get confused that Olam Haba, they think that Olam Haba and Gan Eden are the same thing. Olam Haba is the future world, that is the world after Mashiach comes. Gan Eden is where it's right now in Shemaya, this is where obviously there's a different, uh, you know, there's, there's reward and there's pleasure and there's all that, but the Olam Haba and, and Gan Eden are the two different, the two different areas. Did that clarify your question? Answer? Yeah. So let's say someone was like, they just didn't believe that someone was physical, I guess, but they were like very good, they always gave tzedakah or whatever, I don't know, they believed in the basic, you know, Judaism and whatever, but they didn't believe in that factor. Are they able to go in Ganathan, but not on Laba? Oh, okay, I hear your question, that's a great question. So, so let me just clarify the question. So the Rambam, the Rambam in Hilchot Shuvah goes and brings down that there are certain people that this is based off a of Gemara in Sanhedrin uh, and you know if you want to look at it over there, there are certain people that have no shear in the world to come. So now the question is, is that can somebody, that's a great question that's a great question, can somebody go and have Gan Eden but not have Olam Haba? And it's a good question I don't recall any source speaking about this that I learned. But but I would probably say yes in a certain way. Because, and I'll tell you why. And I'm, I, I don't want to lent, make this lengthy and I don't want to make this more of a complex situation, but I will throw a wrench in here. There is something called kares. Right? If somebody goes, if somebody goes and violates a certain thing, there's kares. So there's kares and there's enlom chelek lolam Two different things. So, so kares means that you get cut off. And Elam Chalak Lalam Abba means they have no share in the world to come. So what is the difference between getting cut off and no share in the world to come? So in fact, the, the, there's a commentary on the Rambam and Hilchos Shuvah. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was and I can't remember off the top of my head that does go and say that Elam Chalak Lalam Abba is a worse level than Karis. And again, I'm saying this from memory, so don't, uh, uh, you know, don't quote me. I may be incorrect. I think I'm right though. So, so what is the difference between Karis and notion of the world to come? Karis means that you get cut off from God. And there's different levels of Karis, you know, whether they die young, whether their children are young, there's different, we're not going to get into all the, um, the details of it. I gave a class in it. If you want to go to Torah anytime, I search Kares or Karet, K-A-R-E-T, I believe you'll come up with this. Uh, I gave a class called Three Different Types of Karet. I'll go speak about it in really in depth on it. But 
there is there is different things on it. And what is the difference with Olam Haba with with Elam Kalakulamba to Karis? So Karis means you get cut off. Elam Kalakulamba means that not only you get cut off from God, but it's also eternal punishment after that. That's what one of the Mefarshim goes and explains from the Rabbim, which means it's a higher level than uh, than Karis. So the concept of let's say somebody goes and violates something that has no share in the world to come. They have no share in the world to come, meaning that, you know, one of the things that they believe that God is a person or whatever it is, uh, one of the, the you know, many uh, things that you could do to fall into that category. You don't believe in the Torah, uh, you know, again, there's a, there's a whole long list. You don't believe in God, you believe that uh, there was, a, there was uh, there's a whole thing with the New Testament, you believe that there was another, uh, you know, whatever. I'm not going to get into all, all that, but there's a whole list of things of what you could do to lose your share in the world to come. And the answer that comes into my mind is that anything that you do good, you do get rewarded for it. Yes, you do get punished for it, but you do get rewarded for it. But the question is, where are you going to get rewarded for it? And many times you get rewarded for it in this world, and you don't get rewarded for it in the next world. So it's possible that you won't have not Ganadin and not Olam Haba. But there's also a possibility that I could see it that you didn't get rewarded in this world and then you'll have some Gan Eden, but you won't have Olam Haba. So because these things are, are, are separate, there is a way to differentiate. And again, I, I have to look at, this is something that's a great, great question. I would have to look into it to find a source for it. But this is, this is my uh, mindset, my thought process until now. Excellent question. That's great. Okay, we had another question over here. I am fresh out of, uh, came in in the chat. I am fresh out of high school. And family and people around me always encourage me to expand my education and going to college and getting a degree. I have no idea what I want to do, and it's difficult to think about a career because it because isn't the job of a Jewish woman to raise their children. Where does the balance lie? I want to hear okay, I want to hear my opinion. Okay, so this is a great, great question. Um, and it gets very, you know, like I have to be careful how I speak about in public about college, uh, because it's a very controversial topic, you know, on it. Um, yes, so, so let's, let me, uh, let, let's try to, to back this up a little bit. Yes, uh, you know, a Jewish woman should be raising a family, um, that is, you know, it's not only a Jewish woman, any woman, you know, they raise the kids. But then you could ask the same question, how do you go people in Kolo? What are people, in, what do what I mean people in Kolo? People in Kolo are going and they're sitting and learning, but who's supporting the family? The wife is supporting the family. But the wife is working, so who's raising the kids? The husband is, is learning, and, and many times you see the Kolo, you know, the Kolo families, the wife is working all day, and the husband is learning in yeshiva, and you go to the bus stop, who's by the bus stop? The husband. Because the husband takes, you know, he goes ben darim, you know, goes to the, you know, between between uh, learning, he goes to pick up the kids, and he goes and he gives them dinner, and then he goes back to learn. So, so many times over here, I see the woman is acting like what the man used to do, and the man is acting kind of what the woman used to do, but it's really not, you know, not like that. Uh, really, the, the, you know, the, the, the fundamentals are still there, but it looks like it's, like, like it's reversed. So when you look at that, that a woman is working, so now a woman is a woman is in the job force. So if a woman is in the job force now, she should, you know, might as well instead of being, you know, working in a low paying job, might as well as, as try to get a high paying job. Now again, a college degree is not needed to get a high paying job, but do I think that it's bad for somebody to go and get a college degree? Not necessarily. Assuming that you're doing it right, there's a, there's many ways. Let me just preface this like like you know. College is a waste of time. Let, let's just be honest with that. College is a waste of time. I happen to have a college degree. College is a waste of time. Um, you don't, you know, many people don't use their degrees. Many people don't, you know, it, it's people, you know, it's stealing money. That being said, I'm not saying don't go to college. I'm not, I'm saying you don't need to go to college, but there is a benefit in college. You want to become an accountant, for example. 
you can't become an accountant without going to college. You could open up an accounting business without going to college, but you can't act as an accountant. You want to be a nurse. You want to be a doctor. You want to be a PA. You want to uh, be a therapist. These are things that you need to go to college for to get it. But it has to be at what price? So it's really, th- this discussion is really a whole, a whole share in itself. And it's really a whole share in itself and on what is the correct aspect to be. But the, the real question is, it's not really, it, it, the, the subject is so broad and there's so many different facets to it. It really depends on where you see yourself and what you want. So if you want, uh, if you want to go and you want to, you know, be a working person, and you want to work in a professional field, you don't necessarily need a college degree, but it, it can help you. It does get you through the door in certain interviews. So it's kind of confusing of what I'm saying, but in one sense, it could be beneficial. In another sense, it's not needed. So it really depends on where you're holding. Um, generally, the way that I would respond, and I can't respond to you in personal because that is something we have to take offline, and I'm more than happy if you want, we could discuss it offline, but it all depends on the person. It all depends on the person. Uh, but if going into college is going to risk spirituality in any sort of way or form, then I 100% you know, go against, say go against it. So that is the confusing... And I, I probably just made you more confused from that, but the information you know, is out there of, of, what I, of what I mentioned. So in short, it's, people do go to college and... In certain situations, it is warranted and it is beneficial, but not in all situations. So it really depends on your situation. And you really have to think about it. What is the correct thing to do? And many times you have to go and ask your rabbi, your rabbitson, your, even your parents to, to some extent. So, you know, it's funny because when I thinking about that, I probably wouldn't have said that all out loud. But it's going to be now recorded. It's going to be online because there is a lot to speak about and there's a, there is a lot of different uh, balances that you need to uh, you, you need to really to consider in this. Okay. Now, with that confusing, let's go to the next question. Why is it that if someone only needs X amount of money to live, let's say $20,000, but they make about 100000 profit income, why are they limited to only giving 20% to tzedakah? If anyways they don't need it, no plans to save it or use it, I want to use it for care of limitara. Okay, so the question is, so um, the the question here really is about Miser. So Miser, you have to give 10%. 10% of your money, 10% of your net profits should go to Miser. Uh, but if you want to go on a higher level, that's a Chomish, that's a fifth, that is 20%. But the question is, that why could you only give 20%? I believe this is the question. Why can you only give 20%? Let's say you want to give more. You make, you, you need to live $20,000 a year. And you make $100,000 a year. Why do you only, why could you only give $20,000? Why can't you give $80,000 away? And the answer is, first of all, is that if somebody, let's, you know, I, I, there are people, there are people that give 90% of their money away. And why is that allowed? And you're not supposed to, because those people are making hundreds of millions of dollars. And Sadiqim, righteous, righteous people, literally, they give most of their money away. And they keep very, very little of their money for themselves. But that's because the very, very little of the money that they're making is still millions of dollars. But if you're living on $100,000, whatever it is, and you need the money to survive, and you need the money to pay education for whatever it is for your children, and you need to put food on the table, and you want to go and buy a house, whatever it is. So the, the Torah goes and tells us, the, the Cham and Chazal go and tell us that you're only supposed to give a certain amount. Don't give more than 20%. Why? Because that's for the general population. 
For the general population, you shouldn't give more than 20%. But if somebody's making significant amount of more, of course they're allowed to give more. Of course they're allowed to give more. But why the only 20%? Because then, so there are some people that they have such a good heart, they just end up giving anything, everything, and they're not going to have anything left over for themselves. And that's what the Torah says, no, 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 you have to keep for yourself. You have to go and you have to live, you have to survive. But for somebody that has enough to give 90% and still survive very, very comfortably and even in luxury, that's a whole different story. Okay, looks like that was the final question. If there are no more questions, we will bid you all a good night, a Shabbat Shalom, and have an amazing, amazing week. Thank you all for joining. Thank you all for listening. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.